May I speak to you in the name of the Holy One. Amen. Good morning, church, and welcome back. It is just an inexpressible joy to have the full choir back with us. We have been blessed over the summer with incredible soloists, talented substitute organists, and most especially Dr. Keene. So we have not been without beautiful music. But there's nothing quite like the choir under Dr. Keene's direction at Ascension. And I am so happy to be hearing you all again. As we enter into this programming year, there is so much going on at Ascension. It truly feels like a new level of return to normal, even though I know things are not actually normal. So it's good to see all of you and know that you are well and thriving in these still fraught times. I want to begin with a story a very long time ago, back in the Pleistocene when my husband and I first met. We went on a trip together to our beloved Fisher's Island along with one of my siblings whose name shall not be mentioned in order to spare him embarrassment. Back then, we were quite young and living on a shoestring, and Philippe and I discovered that if you took Metro North to New Haven, you could rent a car there and save a lot of money on the trip since you weren't paying New York City car rental rates. And you also didn't have to cope with the Friday and Sunday traffic. I am sure good New Yorkers that you are, that you all know how Metro North trains have different kinds of seats, some in the front and the back and then in the middle. And the ones in the front and the back have those two benches that face each other. So if you have four people who know each other, they can sit facing each other and travel, travel more companionably, or if they don't know each other, more uncomfortably. So, my brother and I were sitting opposite each other on the aisle seats, and Philippe was in the window seat next to me. Not long after the train started, the conductor came down the car and was taking tickets. He got to my brother first, took his single ticket, punched it, and then handed it back to him. Then he came to me. I handed him two tickets, one for me, one for Philippe, the conductor took them, punched them, and gave them back. Without even a moment's thought, purely by instinct, my brother reached out across the space between us, grabbed the two tickets out of my hand, and turned to the conductor and said, how come she got two and I only got one? There was a silence, and then the conductor responded to him as evenly as possible. Well, sir, this lady paid for two tickets, so she got two receipts. Off he went. My brother turned red as a beet, realizing what he had done. We all had a good laugh about it later, but it was 
kind of a moment. To me, this story is a fascinating example of just how deeply embedded in the human DNA is competitiveness and the fear of scarcity and the desire to hoard and have more. Because that's not how my brother usually behaves. So his actions that day were purely instinctual. This story came back to me this week when I was reading both our Exodus passage and also our Gospel passage, because each of them speaks of the very innate human tendency to compete and withhold and hoard and to make sure our own needs are met, and then to justify that with an appeal to fairness. Oh, and Maybe, just maybe, we pad our stash a little extra for safety, right? You never know when it's going to rain. We've all had these thoughts. We've all made these calculations. But just think for a moment about what God says today in the passage from Exodus. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. People, if that is not a promise of God's abundance, I don't know what is. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. Not frogs, not insects, not pestilence, not boils, not water as red as blood. Remember, the people of Israel in this story had just seen all of those awful things rain down upon the Egyptians during the plagues of Egypt. That very Egypt they had escaped, the very Egypt they were suddenly begging to return to after wandering in the wilderness, the very Egypt where they were enslaved and forced to work hard labor. I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. What's so fascinating about God's promise in the Exodus story is how deeply it shows that God understands human nature, how God knows we will settle for and stay in a bad situation because we know it and are too afraid to trust in something new. So God purposefully makes God's bounty, this manna, this bread from heaven, so it cannot be hoarded. And by doing so, God intentionally invites the wandering Israelites into a daily practice of choosing to engage with God through trust. God also knows that ideas are one thing, 
But for us humans, embodying them in a daily practice takes them to a whole other level. Inhabiting something in a physical way offers us a deeper knowledge, a stronger bond, a greater understanding of what we are seeking to learn about ourselves, about the larger world, about creation, and about why we're here and what is our purpose, and most of all, about God. God also knows that when we allow our bodies to help us process something, we truly internalize it, and we enter into a way of knowing that is deeper and much longer lasting. Jesus returns to this same theme of embodying trust in God's abundance as a daily practice in this parable from Matthew. Last week, Ed laid out for us so beautifully how in this season of ordinary time, we encounter a whole series of parables about the kingdom of heaven and about the ways in which we can bring heaven down to earth, that we get to choose how we wish to live into God's promise of abundance for all of us or not. Today's parable shows clearly how humans can make choices to live here and now into the kingdom in abundance or not. A landowner in our story chooses to hire laborers throughout the day, and he pays them all the same amount, whether they worked the full day or only a few hours. This very human landowner models for us the practice of acting out of abundance. We could spend a whole sermon, and I'm pretty sure I have, talking about how our social and economic structures distinguish between who does and who does not automatically get in the door when it's time for hiring, about how those who don't fit the idea of what is expected can often be set aside as not viable before they even apply. How, for example, people of color can send in the exact same resume they already sent in and had rejected when they used their non-Eurocentric names, but receive a callback when they put it in with a name like John or Jane Smith. How differently abled people are branded as useless in a culture of ableism. We could go on and on. This parable acts as a template for how those who have much are asked to step outside the boundaries of business as usual, to make sure those who are usually seen as outsiders get a chance to work too. It asks us to practice abundance by seeing others through God's eyes, not the eyes of scarcity. But wait, wait, you might be asking, what if they don't have the skills? What if someone's in a wheelchair? 
What if they like to wear shorts and hoodies on the floor of the Senate? Don't our minds just go there reflexively? Don't we too enter into the mindset of scarcity instinctively? It takes practice not to do that. Aren't we all prone to asking, how come she got two and I only got one? Do we see how this parable is offering us a way to live into trust, how to practice abundance? Can we actually do it? Can we at least stop before we act and examine what's holding us back? One commentator I read this week added a nuanced wrinkle to our reluctance that we might not have considered. This commentator imagined that it was God who was asking us, are you envious that I am generous? So think about that for a moment. It says so much about how complicated our relationship to God really is. How do we really feel about God's abundance? And when we think of that abundance, what do we focus on more? The abundance, our competitiveness, or our own sense of not being worthy? Perhaps this commentator wrote, the true opposite of generosity isn't stinginess, but envy. Perhaps we can't stand it that God does for everyone else what God also does for us. Perhaps we want to be the ones who are generous, but we don't know how to begin. Perhaps we are afraid we will never measure up. Beloveds, God has promised to rain bread down on us from heaven. And God is continuously offering us embodied ways to practice that same generosity. It doesn't matter if we can't equal God's outpouring. All that matters is that we try, that we take the first step. God can work with that, and God will work with that, because God always finds a way. There's a reason our responses to the questions in the baptismal covenant are always, I will, with God's help. I'll finish with the prayer our bishops say over us at our confirmation. Let us pray. Strengthen, O God, your servants with your Holy Spirit. Empower them for your service and sustain them all the days of their lives. Amen.